Well, uh, I figured out last week a way to get to preach more. All you do is stop your message right in the middle and you get to come back. So, <laughs> I don't know whether Pastor Lindsay was preparing or letting me come back and preach again this week, but uh, I guess since I was in the middle, he'd give, give me a chance to finish up. Um, we were in Luke chapter 17 last week, and uh, we were talking about uh, offense. This is a, kind of the first part we went last week and how, you know, if, if you're the one that brings an offense that causes a believer to stumble, that's a bad thing, basically way to sum it up. You don't want to be the one to do that. We went over that last week and, and shared how he said, uh, Jesus said, you'd be better for a uh, millstone to be tongue around, tied around your neck and thrown in the middle of the ocean and drown if that was you. And how, you know, our lives, we have to be very careful how we live, the choices we make, what we do. It's not about my rights or what I want. It's about what's the best for all of us and for those around us. And how can I best live my life in a way to encourage and lift up the saints? And we, we kind of, that was kind of the first part we went over. And the second part this week is we were going to study, it's talking about forgiveness. Because he, he goes on... Um, I'll read that in a second, but to talk about how we need to be forgiving, forgiving people. And that's one of these songs they sang today, I was trying to find it here, and uh, I found it. It was that, that song, Jesus, Son of God, and it was a wonderful lyric. And it talks about Jesus, and it says this, uh, Crown of thorns to mock your name, forgiveness fell upon your face. A love like this, the world has never known. You know, um, when we think of forgiveness, we think of Jesus. And, and he's our perfect example. Uh, I was just picturing, you know, last week we celebrated Easter and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And um, picturing our Savior dying on a cross with that crown of thorns on him. And it talked about forgiveness fell on his face. I was thinking, what, what was running down his face? Was it, his face was just a bloody mess. It was by his blood that we were forgiven. And... Uh, Man, let's get into this message and think about it. I'll be done if I, if I keep going and quit before I get started. Just thinking about Christ and our example and His forgiveness. and How could we not forgive if He set such a wonderful example and forgave us? Amen. Let's read this and get caught back up where we were. In Luke chapter 17. It says, Then He said unto His disciples, it is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were far, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he, sh- than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shall forgive him. Forgiveness, really, we think about it and think about that word forgiveness. It's a wonderful word. Just take a moment as we're sitting here, just kind of getting ready and thinking about forgiveness and ponder what that means to you. What is forgiveness? What are the emotions? What are the memories, the thoughts, the feelings, the, the things in your life that related to that word? When you hear that word, forgiveness. Especially when you relate it to yourself being forgiven. So often we read verses like this and the first thing that comes to mind says that I must forgive. And we say, boy, that's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But if we flip it around and we think about us being forgiven. Think about what that word, the connotation of that word. It's wonderful. It's a, it's a word of freedom. It's a word of joy, peace, and restoration, and encouragement. That word forgiveness... It's huge, especially when you think about Jesus. When we were talking about that song where it says that a, the forgiveness fell on his face. My forgiveness offered by him. You know, if we look at forgiveness from this standpoint of it's, an, it's a wonderful thing. Forgiveness is a great word, a great thing. Then we start reading verses like this that may seem to be hard at first that tell us that we have to forgive others is... Uh, all of a sudden it makes it to be something that, this is a good thing. It's not something I'm told I had to do, but it's something I get to do. Does that make sense? Amen. So, 
in reading this, we, we're talking at the beginning about offenses, right? We we're saying these are, are acts or teaching or things that causes somebody to fall into sin. And he says, if you are uh, one who commits an offense and causes a young one, a little one, which is a, a believer is what he's talking about, to stumble and fall into sin, it's a really bad thing. You shouldn't do it. But what happens if you're on the receiving end of that? What if the offense comes against you? What if somebody offends you? What if somebody sins against you or causes you to fall into sin? He kind of shifts gears here and he says, so now what if it happens to you? First one is talking about the one that does it. And then now on this side is, what if it happens to you? What should be our response? Well, he goes, really, there's a three-step. If you look in verse 3, there's a three-step response he gives. And it doesn't necessarily just jump out with forgiveness right away. The first step is to identify our enemy. That's really important. To get to the third step, you've got to understand the first step. If you get the first step wrong, you're going to miss the third one. We've got to identify our enemy. The next one is to attempt the rescue. And then the third one is to forgive the offender. So in this first step, he says here, Take heed of yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Read that, take heed. You know, as born-again followers of Christ, we're not at liberty just to live our life in a reactionary kind of way. We can't just react. We have to do what it says, take heed. Somebody sins against you, somebody offends you, take heed. Stop and think about this. Be aware, be, be uh, conscious of your actions. Think about what you're about to do. You know, so often as Christians... We just want to react, and that's, that gets us into trouble. As unbelievers, as sinners, react all day long because that's what sinners do, right? They just react and do what they want to do. They, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, it's sin. Where it comes from, it's just reactionary. As Christians, we can't do that. We have to stop. Okay, we're in a situation. Somebody's offended me. Somebody's sinned against me. Somebody's caused me to fall into sin. I need to stop for a moment and think. And say, okay, how am I going to handle this? I have to engage my brain, engage the Word of God, engage truth and say, how do I handle this situation? Proverbs 4, 6, I brought that up here a couple weeks ago when I was speaking. It says to ponder the way in which you should go. Ponder your paths. Ponder the Word of God. Think about what you're about to do. And in doing so, what do we say? Okay, well, who's my enemy here? In this whole situation, I've been caused to sin, I've been sinned against, I've, had a, I've got a problem going on. My first thing is, who is my enemy? And if anybody's read the Bible for any length of period of time at all, we realize our enemy is not our brother or our sister or the one that sinned against us. That's not our enemy. Go to 1 Peter 5.8. Does anybody want to take a guess? Just pop quiz. Who is our enemy if it's not our brother? Satan is our enemy. I said 1-8, didn't I? 5-8, sorry. We'll get there. It says, be sober and vigilant. There it is again. It's kind of like that same word, take heed. As Christians, be sober, be vigilant, be engaged in this life. Don't just, I'm saved and now I'm going to check out and wait till the day I die and go to heaven. No, I'm saved and now I've got to be sober, be vigilant, take heed, pay attention. Why should we be sober and vigilant? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The devil is our enemy. The devil is like described here as a roaring lion. In Job, the first chapter of Job, what does God, when God interacts with Satan, he says, where you been? What did he say? He says, I've been going to and fro all over the earth. Satan goes around this earth and what is he doing? And here in First Peter, he calls him like a roaring lion. What's he doing? He's going all. You ever been to the zoo? I've never seen lions out in the wild, but I've seen them in the zoo. Lions and tigers and those things. What do they do? They're just wandering constantly on the prowl, wandering, wandering. And what are they doing? They're looking for prey that they can destroy. And that's how Satan is, is, is described. If, if a, I don't know what their prey are, I guess like a mongoose or something is out in the, in the jungle... 
And he just decides today I'm going to check out and I'm just going to walk around the forest eating nuts and berries and enjoy my life. He's going to be a dead mongoose really soon, right? Because that lion, that, that tiger, whatever it is, is wandering around and he's on the prowl. And he's ready to take him out. And if he's not on guard and he doesn't recognize who his enemy is and who's out to get him, he's going to be dead. The same way with us as Christians. We need to be on our guard. We need to recognize who is our enemy. It's the devil. And we got to be aware. He's coming to get us. He is everywhere. He's moving around. Always on the prowl. Going from the earth to and fro. Why? To, to destroy us. He's got one goal in life. And that's to destroy us. Because by destroying us, he shames God. That's his goal. So, in another uh, verse that talks about that is in Ephesians chapter 6. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, we all know this verse. It's a great one to remember and to memorize and to repeat to yourself when somebody upsets you. You're in the middle of an argument with your wife, your brothers and sisters. You're arguing, and boy, you just really messed me up today. You, you know, you broke my toy. Right? Or your kids did something to upset you. Or your brother says something rude to you. Or, or, or a sister says, does, acts in a way that you just, ah, I'm not sure. Just somebody, the pastor stands up and preaches and you're like, boy, I really didn't like what he said. Or something upsets you. We need to be able to put this verse and stick it in our brain and be able to look at that person and say this. Chapter 6, verse 12. Says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I look at my wife and she I come home and she just decides to do something, not even intentionally, and messes up my day. And I can either look at her and say, we're going at it. I'm just sick of you. Or I can look at her and say, You're not my enemy. You didn't even intend to mess, mess my day up. The devil has used you like a tool to destroy me. And that's not saying it in a mean way because he uses me all the time. But I, that's how I, I view it. I look at my brother and my brother says something to me and it just offends me. And I go off and I'm stewing about it going, I can't believe that. I mean, he says he's a Christian and he, does, he says stuff like that. And what? And then I need to remind myself, I don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He's not my enemy. He is my brother. He's created by God, loved by God. God died for him. He is just a tool being used by the devil to get to me. And all of a sudden, it changes. Instead of being angry with my spouse, my brother, or my sister, or my friend, or somebody, I'm now angry at who? The one that did it. I was thinking about that and I was saying, you know, if somebody came up to me in the middle of the street and just got angry with me. And just like, you know, I don't like you. And they took a baseball bat out and smacked me on the head with a baseball bat. I would be the biggest fool to ever walk the earth if I picked the baseball bat up and started beating it against the wall. You stupid baseball bat, I hate you, you hurt me. But that's what we do. Somebody offends us, somebody causes us problems, and who's doing it? It's the enemy using them to get to us. And who do I take my anger out on? The baseball bat or the person. They're not my enemy. Pick the baseball bat up and beat the person back that hit you, the, beat the devil back, right? Don't, they're just a tool being used to get to us. That's really important. And that takes vigilance. That takes it says, take heed. we got to be active to do that because what is our gut reaction normally when somebody offends us? It's you. It's you. You're my enemy. And we got to stop and let the Word of God transform us and conform us and say, no, it's not you. I know my anger is vented at you, but it's not you. You're being used to get to me. And then what's the second step he says here? He says, take heed. Recognize who our enemy is. And then he says, rebuke him. So our second step when we've been offended or sinned against is to attempt a rescue. If this person's caused a problem, remember, because it talks about if you've caused somebody to sin, you bring an offense, you're the one that brings the offense, then you're in a bad place. You're in a bad situation. Don't do it. So they need rescue. If somebody's committed a sin or somebody has committed an offense, 
Attempt a rescue. Rebuke him. Go to Matthew 5, 9. It's a great verse to remember. It's in the, uh, the Beatitudes. In my life, as a Christian, one of my goals should be to be a peacemaker. And, and very often we're not. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Go over to Matthew 5.18. And it talks about this rebuking here. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are, we are commanded by God to be peacemakers in this world. How often... Um, I don't think I'm a strange individual completely. I think I'm fairly normal and like other people. And there's a lot of times in life where I'll catch myself not being a peacemaker. Not attempting to be a peacemaker because I've been offended. I've, something's happened to me and so... I'm going to make it right. And I'm going to earn my rights and not think about the fact, like I said, you're not my enemy. The devil's my enemy. He's created discord here. I'm going to be about making peace. My goal is to restore and to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. And Matthew 18 tells us how we go about doing this. If we want to attempt a rescue, we want to rebuke a brother... It really helps to know how to do it. Do we just walk up to the person in the middle of the room and say, You've offended me. You're in sin. You've got a problem. You need to repent. Does the Bible tell us to do that? No, we need to remember, as Christians, be, village, be sober, be, be, be vigilant. We need to think about how we respond, how we act. And we need to use the Word of God to guide that. And Matthew 18 tells us about the proper way to deal with a brother in sin. And it's found in that context of the, the, the uh, scripture Brother Phil was reading this morning. The lost sheep. This teaching that Jesus gives here on how to handle a rebuke. Or how to go to somebody who's in sin or has caused the problem. How to handle them is right in the middle of a story about the lost sheep. What was the goal of a rebuke? Remember, what is our goal? Is our goal to help that person to be aware of how bad they are? Is it to uh, earn my rights because you've offended me and I need to defend my rights? No, or defend my honor? No, the goal ultimately is like that lost sheep, to restore that lost sheep back in. Amen. Everything we do, every word we say, every move we make, every action, everything in a rebuke situation when we're going to somebody to confront them should be with the end goal of a restoration of the relationship between us and them, with them and God, and anybody else that's been involved. That's our end goal. If that's your end goal, then you will be able to be an effective peacemaker. You ever, uh, there's these people that call, they're like professional mediators, right? And they come in and they handle arguments and discussions between two people. The way they work it out is we want to create a restoration, a peace between these two parties. They don't get personally involved. And you have to somehow do that in that it's not about the benefit of the, the mediator. When he comes in and, dis, and dis, tries to help people solve a problem, he's not there to try to uh, make his life better. He's there to try to bring a resolution to a solution, a problem between two people, right? Our goal is to do the same thing. And we've got to do that because if it's not your goal, when you go to rebuke somebody, when you go to, to uh, restore, to, to try to, to deal with this sin or this offense, if that's not your goal, I can guarantee you we're going to mess it up. I know we will. If, you're, if you don't, the devil's going to use it to make matters worse. And so let's go into Matthew 18 and read and see how Jesus says to handle it. There's really four steps to handle in this. If you're ready to say somebody has sinned against me, somebody's got an offense, they're in sin, I need to go and deal with a person, another individual. I need to know, my end goal is to what? Restore. And I need to know the process by which I'm going to get to that point. If I don't understand the process, I'm going to get off track and the devil's going to use the emotions, the difficulties of the situation to get me off track. And he's going to mess things up really bad. So in verse 15, it says this. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. So what's the first step? To him, 
alone. I don't even need, it doesn't even say here to go and seek counsel from other people on how I should handle this. Should we go and seek counsel from the Lord? Of course. Is it possible that we could go and seek wisdom? Because there are verses that say that you need to seek counsel and wisdom from a pastor or somebody that is a, 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 um, a leader in your life, a mentor, to help you make sure you're doing this right. But you better be very careful when you're going to seek counsel. Because seeking counsel can quickly turn into slandering and gossiping about a brother or a sister. We need to be really guarded about that. Week says we go to them alone. Not in the middle of a room, not right before church on Sunday when there's a bunch of people standing around. We go and pull them aside alone and deal with them. And what does it say? You tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, what have you done? It says you've gained your brother. You've accomplished that goal. Step one could be the very end of this process. If, if this is real important here. If you've gained your brother... Does it say then we need to go and tell everybody about how this situation has been resolved? And boy, he hurt me real bad, but I went to him, he for, I, he, I, he, I forgave him, he repented, we got it restored, but boy, I'm going to drag his name through the mud now for the next five years. Does it say to do that at all? No, it says it's over. You've gained your brother, move on. Let, let, let God deal with anything else that needs to be done with. Step two, what if he doesn't listen to you? What if he says, get out of here, I don't want anything to do. Uh, I don't think you're right. Are you free now? Once you've started this process, are you free now to just walk away and say, okay, he wouldn't listen to me. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. No, you've engaged in a process that God has laid out in the Bible. You are now bound to continue it. If he will not hear thee, then take with thee two or more, one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Okay, so we go and get two or three witnesses. This does not mean that it has to be people that saw whatever happened. What it means is witnesses that can come and stand and witness the discussion between you and this other individual. They can be there as witnesses to what's going on. I've had Christian people tell me that I've went and discussed with them and brought another brother with me because they wouldn't have made the second step. Tell me, well, you can't bring that person. They don't have any idea what happened. They weren't there. This is not talking about a witness that was there and actually saw it happen. This is talking about a witness that can come and witness that this is, you are following the proper channels of biblical discipline. Does that make sense? And if he shall neglect to hear them, what do we do now? That's the second step. Is we take two or three. If he listens, then you've been restored again. And if he still neglects to listen, then you go to the church. Then it's brought before the church. And it's announced. And then it's made a public spectacle before the church. And then at that point, if that person will not repent, that person is not kicked out and destroyed and said, done away with you. Because remember, what is our ultimate goal? Restoration. If our goal is not restoration, but to just prove this person's in sin, then we could say, get out of here, we don't need anything to do with you. It says this, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. And if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Alright, how do we treat publicans and heathen or sinners? We treat them as lost people in need of the gospel. So, at this point, he is now determined to be an unsaved individual, this person is. And we don't just say away with you. No, we stop treating them as a believer and now we start sharing the gospel with them. And we treat them as an unbeliever. We pray for them. We don't just ignore them and say, okay, they're done. We've went through the process. We're done with them. You realize we're never done with anybody. We don't ever just okay, goodbye. We're sick of you. No. We work with them. We, we try to reach out to them. If they run away, they run away. But the end goal of this, pro of this process is restoration. And if a person is now declared to be unsaved, they become an evangelistic opportunity so that they can be restored. The end goal is always restoration. It's always restoration. 
Look at the, the, the story in, in the, all through the Old Testament where it compares, they're, they're all through, it compares the Israelites to uh, prostitutes, basically. They just kept running away. Look at it, the story of Gomer. Just kept running away and, and bringing her back. Right? Running away and bringing her back. And, and God says this, if, they, if, if they've been declared unsaved, if they're an evangelistic opportunity, continue to chase them. This rebuke should never end in, we're done with you. We now put their name on the cross and we start praying for them. We start reaching out to them. Our goal is ultimately to restore. And then at the very end of this, Luke 17, verse 3, if he repents, what do we do? This is where it gets really difficult, if you want to be honest. This is where that forgiveness comes in. We now... Forgive the offender. And I was looking up that word forgive and kind of what it means in definition because I think I understand it, but I'm not sure. And the way that they just, the, the definition I found was to release or to pardon. I've now released this person from any, anything I could hold against them for having sinned against me. I've released them. What does that mean? Do I bring it up tomorrow? Do I bring it up three years from now? Do they? No, I've released them. Jesus' blood pays the penalty for their sin. But my forgiveness when he's saying forgive them here is that I've released you. I'm not holding this against you anymore. And this is really a wonderful thing. How can we, this is a question I was asking. I've heard a, a man talking about this on the radio a couple weeks ago. And it was really good. How can we live in a way that we are ready to forgive those that sin against us? It's a good question. How can I do this? I've went through this process. I've brought rebuke. I've, I've restored and everything. And now I'm to the point where I need to forgive them. How in the world am I going to do that? Because it's hard. Anybody ever had somebody do something to really upset you? And to really hurt you? It is hard to forgive. It's a difficult thing. But one of the ways that we can be prepared to do it. And one of the ways that we can do it is by having a clear understanding of the gospel. What does the gospel say? One of the, well, the one thing the gospel says is that we have sinned as well. Romans 6.23 said all have sinned, right? So when I look at this person and they've sinned against me, the first thing I should think is, okay, I kind of expected that. I sinned too. I've committed sin. The moment you sin against me, it should remind me, that's why Jesus came to this world. Because you've sinned. And He knew you were going to sin. He knew that we have all sinned. And your sin should remind me that I'm a sinner too. And that's why Jesus came to earth. That's the very first thing that should go through my mind. Not my hurt, my anger, my pain, my frustration. My very first thought is, well, your sin is why Jesus came. And now i got my brain wrapped around that. So, your sin is why Jesus came. And now here's another kicker. Remember I said, we've all sinned, I've sinned? Jesus died for me in Romans 5.8 and forgave me even while I was yet a sinner. Before I even came to Him and repented. He laid down His life. That's why that verse caught me so strong is that that forgiveness fell on his face on the cross while I was yet in sin. Even yet while I was a sinner, while I turned my back on him, while I ran from him, while I ignored him, I didn't want anything to do with him and actively denied him, he still gave his life for me and forgave me. Amen. That's a clear understanding of this gospel. Look at Matthew, we're already in 18. Let me flip back over there. I should have had you keep your finger on it. Go to 23 and 25. Here's somebody that didn't understand this concept. Therefore the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But for so much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had in payment be made. 
You know, we read these Bible stories and we just kind of fly right through them. This guy had a lot to pay, the big debt, they were going to sell him away. Picture a debt you owed so great that you were now going to be sold into slavery. Your wife and children. What's it say there? The wife and his children and all that he had was to be sold. And the payment was to be made by the selling of his family and all of his belongings into slavery. This man's life was basically over. He had nothing. No rights, no things, no nothing at this point. He was standing before somebody who was a king, who had all authority, was ready to destroy his life and take everything. He'd, he'd have been almost as, as well off just killed him. You get it was bad. And what happens? The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. This is, this is such a wonderful... You want to talk about the gospel. Think of these verses. This guy, standing before the king, ready to be destroyed. And he says, I'm going to worship you. For, just give me some time and I'll work this payment off. I'll pay this debt. And what does the Lord say? The Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and allowed him to go free and pay back his debt. Is anybody else reading their Bible? Because that's not what it says. What's it say? It says, He forgave him his debt. God didn't look at us when we bowed down and cried out to Him and said, Okay, you've got another, you were saved in your 20s, you've got another 60, 70 years to live. Man, you work really hard for me, and I'll let you pay that debt back. Did God tell any of us that? No, He looked at us, and He said, I'm about to crush you. And as we fall down and worship Him, He says, Now, I'm not only going to allow you to live, but I'm going to release you completely from the debt you owe me. Is, is anybody else thinking to themselves, going, Wow, I am. I'm thinking, <laughs> that's what God did for me. He had me just ready to crush me like a little bug. And he said, you're free. You're forgiven. There you go. Go free. Your, your payment has been made. See, he didn't ask to be set free. He asked for patience so that he could pay it back. And the, the king, you're never going to pay this back. Just like Jesus knows. We're never going to pay it back. The gospel is a beautiful thing. We can't do it. And God knows it, and He doesn't give us pay, give, take patience and say, just earn it. He says, you're free. Your debt has been paid. And then the sad thing is, if you've ever been in a situation where you've held bitterness, held anger, and not been allow, allow another person to be forgiven, you've acted like this servant. It says, but the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. No comparison to the debt he owed. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe me. His fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, Have patience with me and I'll pay thee all. Exact same thing he begged, right? And he would not. But went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Isn't it interesting? He couldn't even do what the king didn't do. He couldn't even give the guy time to pay it. The king forgave him of everything that he owed. And this man couldn't even do the lesser and just give the guy time to pay it. He cast him into prison so he could till he could pay his debt, which is probably never going to happen. He's in prison, right? When his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that, that debt because thou desiredst me. Should now thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my Father, heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one of his brothers their trespasses. We've been forgiven so much. And if we can't forgive our brother the trespass against us, it really calls into question our salvation. 
because what does he say is going to happen to that servant if he's not willing to forgive? He says, you're going to be delivered to the tormentors where you can pay back your debt. He says that, you know, I've paid it. But if you want to truly be forgiven, you've got to be willing to do this. I'm not saying that he's going to withdraw your salvation. It's not what he's saying there. It's a test of your salvation. Ephesians 4.32 Another wonderful verse. Why should we forgive? How can we forgive? Well, if we think about Jesus, it says this, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet, smelling savor. It says that we are to be imitators of Christ. You know, um, as a Christian, if we understand the gospel, we know we've been set free, we know we've been forgiven. And when somebody sins, all it does is allow us to appreciate the gospel that much more. And what it also does is, by forgiving, we get to behave in the way our Savior does. The Bible commands us, be imitators of Christ. Is Christ the type of person that, does he withhold forgiveness from a repentant person? Never. Never are you going to see where Christ withholds forgiveness from somebody who repents and calls out for forgiveness. He doesn't do that. If we want to be anything at all like Jesus Christ, we have to be willing to forgive. We must. And go to Colossians chapter 3. Here was an interesting, as I was studying through this, it kind of, I thought, man, this is, a, this is an interesting thought, because I'm always thinking about forgiveness of, you know, I want to imitate Christ, um, I want to understand the gospel, I want to be loving and kind. Verse 12, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you also, do ye. That's what, that's what Christ did for us. But go over to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. Remember, this is what it's telling us to do. Go over to 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. We're to forgive. What's it say? Forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If we have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, also do this. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. Where am I at here? Got the wrong verse written down here. I am sorry. Is it 2 Corinthians? do that. Look at verse 2.10. I think it is. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 10. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgive it, forgive I it in the person of Christ. He's talking about forgiving one another. And he says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. What's Satan trying to do to us as, as believers? He's trying to destroy us, but what's Satan trying to do to the church? He's trying to divide and break us and tear us apart. When we forgive one another, we help to restore the unity of the body of Christ. I was reading through that and I was thinking, man, by forgiving my brother, by forgiving one another, and living in a way that I'm ready to forgive, I help to protect against the disunity that the devil tries to create amongst us. 
Do you guys really think that the devil, we talked earlier about he's prowling around trying to cause problems. Do you think the devil in any way uh, is going to just leave us alone as Christians and say, here's a body of believers that is growing in love one for another. They're coming together in unity. They're, they're, they're bound together. They're upholding one another. They're working together and their love is abounding. Do you think he's going to ignore that? No, he's going to come in, he's going to create problems, he's going to create discord, and then he's going to create places where if we do not forgive, there's going to be opportunities for disunification to come around, uh, come about between the body. And that's what the devil wants. And so by forgiving, we can defeat one of the tools of the devil, and that is to disunify the body of believers. Think about how many relationships have been destroyed among believers because they've been unwilling to forgive. There's a bunch, isn't it? Probably one of the top reasons that Christians break fellowship is because they're unwilling to forgive. Probably the one of the number, I would guess, one of the number one reasons. So by being willing to forgive, we can help to unify the body. It's amazing to me. We can do that. And we better do that because the devil is active. Go to James chapter 4 real quick. Why else should we forgive? When I refuse to forgive somebody, what am I saying basically is that my rights... My wants, my needs, my desires are more important than you. I'm better than you, is basically what I'm saying. I, I don't need forgiveness. I don't need Christ's blood. But you're bad. You're, you've ruined my life. I'm more important than you. How does God handle people that live that way, that, be, that believe that way? James chapter 4, verse 6. You've heard this. says... Uh, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace, giveth grace to the humble. When we forgive, we're, we're behaving in a way that is an act of humility. We're being humble. And what does the Bible say? God resists the proud. If I'm unwilling to forgive, it says God's going to resist me. But if I'm willing to forgive... Give grace to the humble. I'll find grace. It may be hard to forgive somebody, but if I'm willing to do it, if I'm willing to say, God, help me do this, please. I, I, they, they really messed up my life, and I'm having a hard time forgiving, but can you help me? What's it say he's going to do? That means you've humbled yourself. You said, I need to forgive. I must forgive. And he'll help you do it. And you'll receive grace. <clears throat> You know, I was thinking this as well. We talked about the beginning of this is to rebuke a person and, and call them to repentance. And a lot of times, we know that we need to go to a person and ask for their forgiveness before they even come to us, don't we? But think about living. This, I was just kind of dreaming. Think about living in a body of believers. That, remember I said about unity? That they, 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 they live in a way that their number one desire is love for one another and the unity of the saints. And you know that they, they, they believe that James 4, 6 is true and they live in a way that's humble. And now you know that a brother has a problem or you've sinned against somebody. You've done something wrong. You've committed a sin. And you know that there's need for restoration. You know that there's need to ask, seek forgiveness. Imagine for a moment living in a group of people that you know without a doubt that that's what they're seeking. They're seeking humility. They're seeking unity. They love one another. You know, that's, you know that is the the lifeblood of the congregation, the people you belong to, how hard would it be for you to go and seek forgiveness? It may be difficult, but it would be way easier one day. Because you know, the moment you go and ask forgiveness, that person is going to forgive you, and their goal is going to be restore you. Imagine that for a second. I was thinking, why is it so hard to go and repent and to ask forgiveness? It's probably because, one, I know myself. And I know that there's still a corrupted flesh that I've got to deal with and that I've got to hurdle over to offer forgiveness at times. Even though I know the truth, I've still got to overcome that. And I also know that there's other people that I'm not really sure that they love me. I'm not really sure 
that they are seeking my best interest. As a body of believers, we need to grow in our love one for another. We need to live in a way that everybody that walks in this place knows, without a doubt, if they come to me and they ask for my forgiveness, they're going to get it. Amen. Guaranteed. What a wonderful, that's like utopia. I'm thinking, man, what a wonderful place to live in. That everybody in there is seeking my best interest. They're going to put me before themselves. They're going to offer forgiveness. And I couldn't wait. It would be like Sunday morning. Let's go to church. Come on everybody where you're at. I'm going to go hang out with these people. I've been dealing with people that are the exact opposite all week long. And I get to go to be at church with these people that are forgiving. That describes them. They're loving. They're humble. They're forgiving. They are like Christ. Amen. And then he says this in verse 4. Let's go down to verse 4. Now that we know that we're supposed to forgive, I think everybody should be in agreement that it's a good thing. And that the Bible teaches that. And how to do it is understanding the gospel. Realizing we are to be humble and love one another. And then he makes it really, really difficult, which Jesus always does. They say, if he trespasses against thee seven times a day, seven times in a day, turn again to thee, saying, I repent. Thou shalt forgive him. Wow. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says that love never ends. If we truly love my brother, if I've truly forgiven you, when you come back to me and ask forgiveness again, hear this, this is vital. If I've truly forgiven you, I truly love you in love, I've been like Christ, and I say, I've forgiven you, and you come back to me and say, I repent, forgive me, it would be like the first time every time. I wouldn't be able to say, nah, I just forgave you a week ago because I didn't really remember what I said. What's forgiveness? Pardon or to release? I haven't really released you. I haven't really pardoned you. I haven't really understood true forgiveness if you come back and I say, yeah, not this time. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just not, not ready. I can't do it. Um, I heard a guy when I was first getting married talking about in marriage how to love one another and you're going to have arguments and you're going to forgive and I can't remember if it was a book or it was speaking but it was speaking to the husband and he said this he said it is always your turn to forgive always? no matter what happens it's always your turn picture this this was in a husband and wife but what we're talking about in a fellowship imagine if everybody in this fellowship truly believed and love never ended they, they, they lived in a way where they just loved and loved and it just never had an end because the love of Christ flowed through them and out into the people and they never came to an end of their love. And everybody that you were a part of the fellowship with lived in a way that this, it's always my turn to forgive. It's never my turn to say, no, you need to forgive this time. I'm, I'm in the right and I'm not going to ask forgiveness. I'm, I'm in the right, I'm not going to offer forgiveness. They were always saying, I forgive and I offer forgiveness. That's the first thing that comes out of your heart and out of your mind is, I want to forgive, I want to be forgiven. What, what is it going to take to get this relationship restored? Imagine that. Love never ends. It doesn't come to a point where it says, I can't love you anymore. I'm sorry. I've, I've hit the end of my rope. Imagine. That, that, that's, that unjust servant. Imagine. Jesus looking at us and saying, no, you, you've done too much. You went too far. I can't do this anymore. Would he ever say that to us? No, he would have by now. I guarantee you. Never. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. This one's kind of... Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God... And knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. For love is of God. Remember what I said, this whole idea of forgiveness and love, compassion, it's more of a litmus test for your salvation. If you look at a person and say, I don't love you enough to forgive you. I can't forgive you. I can't offer forgiveness. can't do it. I'm sorry. Really what you're saying is, I know absolutely nothing about the love of God, and I have not been born again. Amen. Boy, that's hard. But it's encouraging as well, because 
we know that the people that we walk amongst that are true believers have this love that comes from God and it's never, ever going to end. The true believers are going to love. Because why? God is love. Does that make sense? So really what we're saying is there that fences are going to come. But when they come, we don't want to be the one through who they come. The one that creates the offense. And when we're offended against, when somebody sins against you, you need to attempt a rescue. But we also need to be ready to forgive. And how often? As many times as it takes. Because love never ends. When you feel like you can't forgive somebody, remember the gospel. Remember that you've been forgiven. And remember this, by forgiving one another, by loving one another, you create a place where love is going to abound. And who doesn't want to be a part of that? What a wonderful thing. And it drives the devil away. Amen. So let's do that. Let's, let's try. I think God's really challenging us as believers. That let's try to walk amongst each other, to live together in a way that love is going to abound. That we know without a doubt every one of these people that we've committed ourselves to. I love you and you love me in such a way that no matter what happens, forgiveness and restoration are going to define our relationships. How does that sound? Pretty good way to live. Don't you think? Amen. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for your word. You've offered your son on our behalf. And I can't comprehend that, Father. can't comprehend how amazing that is. You've been so good to us. You've delivered us from an impending wrath. Help us, God, to walk in love. Help us to grow in love. Help us to understand love. God set us apart. I pray when those in the world look at us and say, um, I, 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 can't, I can't understand the way they live. That they would see our love one for another and they would give glory to God. Help us to live in that way, Lord. To be ready to forgive. To be ready to restore. and To be imitators of Christ. It's in His name we pray, Lord.